Good afternoon. Assalamu alaikum. And welcome to the Carl Field Center for Equality and Cultural Understanding. Here at the, at the center, we strive to empower members of the university community as they seek to learn about self, understand the breadth of cultural and social differences among us, and build the skills needed to create and lead a more just world. My name is Makiba Clay, and I'm the director here at the center. And I'm delighted that you all were able to join us today for what promises to be a very thought-provoking conversation between two of the world's greatest thinkers on issues of race, politics, and religion. One, our beloved teacher, preacher, scholar, and activist, Dr. Cornell West. And, and also, our guest, scholar and author, and somewhat of a homeboy, a Philly native, Dr. Sherman Jackson from the University of Michigan. At this time, I'd like to extend my thanks to the co-sponsors of this program. First, the Office of Religious Life, the Muslim Life Coordinator, uh, Soheb Sultan, the Center for African American Studies, the Muslim Students Association, the Black Student Association, and the Department and Program in Near Eastern Studies. I would also like to say a special thank you to my right-hand colleagues at the center. I hope they're in the room. Uh, both Dr. Christy Agawu, who is our program coordinator, Christy, and also my right-hand administrative assistant, Antoinette Richardson, who's probably running around making sure everything is okay at the last minute. Thank you so much for your work. And I'd also be remiss if I didn't acknowledge our students, both the students who work very closely with the Office of Religious Life, uh, specifically uh, the students who are uh, working with SOHAB on this program, and also our student fellows. Finally, I've mentioned SOHAB a couple of times. I'd like to thank SOHAB, my colleague, who is the coordinator for Muslim Life in the Office of Religious Life, who's only been here about a year and is already shaking things up at, at Princeton. And I'm so pleased to have had the opportunity to work with Sohab. And thank you for introducing this program and Dr. Sherman to me, who I, who I didn't know, Dr. Sherman Jackson. So thank you for your leadership and uh, for bringing all of our campus partners together. So at this time, I'll ask Sohab to join me so that he can introduce the program more fully. Thank you. Welcome everyone. Assalamu alaikum. I would like to begin today's event by thanking Makiba and the wonderful staff here at the Carl Field Center for hosting us this afternoon. The Muslim Life Program in the Office of Religious Life, the chief organizer for this historic event, was created nearly two years ago with the objective of meeting the spiritual and religious needs of the, of the growing Muslim population on campus and also to serve as an intellectual and educational resource for Islam and Muslim cultures. So it is with this latter objective that we come here today to hear these two great scholars. Before us are two great scholars of religion and race engaging one another in such a public forum for the first time. Dr. Jackson on our right comes to us from the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, where he is professor of Islamic law and theology. 
Dr. Jackson is also the author of numerous works, including Islam and the Problem of Black Suffering, which is this, if you haven't seen it yet, and outside for a book signing after the event. And it serves as the inspiration for this conversation here today. Dr. Cornell West needs no introduction, especially for those of us from Princeton University. Dr. West is from Princeton University's class of 1943, a professor in the Center for African American Studies, and one of the country's leading intellectuals. His books include the bestsellers Race Matters and, Dem and Democracy Matters, and his recent memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. The structure of our event will begin with brief reflections on the topic of the problem of black suffering from our two esteemed professors, first with Dr. Jackson and then with Dr. West. Then Dr. Jackson, Dr. West, will exchange two questions each between themselves to get the conversation started. And finally, there will be an opportunity for the audience to participate and to engage in this conversation by asking questions. During the question and answer period, there'll be a mic that will be set up uh, on, the, on this side, in the middle, and on the right side. Uh, there'll be people holding the mic. And so uh, after, after the initial period is done and we move into question and answer, then just come up to uh, the mic. So whoever comes up first, uh, we'll take one on this side, one on this side, and uh, it'll be fair. Um, so without any further ado, uh, we begin our conversation with reflections from Dr. Sherman Jackson. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Suhaib, and uh, everybody for affording me this uh, opportunity to come here and to exchange ideas with uh, my, my dear brother, uh, Cornell West, uh, who has done so much over the years to inspire and, uh, and instruct us all. Uh, I also want to thank uh, you all for coming out, <clears throat> and I want to thank uh, Princeton University uh, for affording us uh, the opportunity to come together in this safe space and to talk about uh, a topic that is uh, of utmost, important, utmost importance in these times in which we live. You know, at the University of Michigan, uh, I teach a course entitled uh, Introduction to Islam. And in the introductory lecture to that course, I often tell my students that I don't teach this course as a constituent of Middle East studies, but as a constituent of American civics. Uh, the Muslim community now in America uh, is a thriving community, and it is one uh, that is integrated into the community, and that <clears throat> Uh, will go on to become uh, an important part of that community. And it's important for us as Americans to be able to come together uh, and exchange with Muslims, come to understand them, as well as have Muslims understand others. And so I thank uh, Princeton University for affording us this opportunity to come here this afternoon to attempt to do, to do that, just that. Um, I've, uh, I've been told that I have about 15 minutes uh, to reflect on the, on the topic of, uh, of, uh, of suffering. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that the whole point of limiting, limiting it to 15 minutes is so that we can be more provocative than we are uh, exhaustive. Uh, so some of my uh, remarks uh, 
may be a bit abbreviated, but hopefully we have time in the question and answer period to ferret some of them out. I want to begin by saying that <clears throat> um, given the constraints of time, I'm going to defer any comments about issues having to do with what they call metaphysical suffering, earthquakes, hurricanes, acts of God, uh, to the question and answer period. I want to focus in my remarks on suffering not as an aspect of nature or acts of God, but as a seemingly endemic dimension of social political reality. I want to talk about suffering that comes as a result of the acts of human beings. The second thing I want to note is that my focus is not, well, my concern is not with individual acts or incidents that might inflict suffering on us, but, but rather on sustained regimes of suffering, what I have referred to in other contexts as regimes of normalized domination. There's a difference between uh, the suffering that I might experience where you tell me that to my face I wasn't attractive. I probably would, uh, my feelings would probably be hurt and I would, I would suffer from that kind of a comment. But I think that there's a fundamental difference between that and living in a society wherein the forces that monopolize the means of defining beauty define me as unattractive. And that is the kind of suffering that I want to talk about, uh, talk about today. Now, it's, in it's exceedingly important to note that the difference uh, between suffering on the one hand and struggle on the other is, is paramount. I think it's real important for us to understand the difference between these two. To struggle is to recognize reality as one's point of departure, but to refuse to surrender to that reality as a representation of the ideal or of all that can be. Those of us who equate struggle with suffering routinely end up on a mission to avert all struggle in the name of averting all suffering. Ultimately, this only reinforces and strengthens the very forces that promote our suffering. For ultimately, suffering can only be overcome through struggle, often against this or that external enemy, but always against the enemy that lurks within. Now let me say a word about, in more precise terms, the suffering that I've been trying to allude to here. Of course, in the plain sense of the, of the word, suffering refers to, or at least relates to, unearned physical, psychological, or emotional pain and deprivation. For me, however, the problem with this kind of understanding of suffering is that it's a bit too simplistic. Because the fact of the matter is that unless we possess the means through which we can normalize this pain and deprivation and raise it beyond critique, suffering in this sense will almost always be opposed. That is to say, unless you are able to put me in a position where I can accept, either through your arguments or through having internalized this by osmosis, by living in a particular kind of society, that I deserve to be in this position, or I deserve to be in that inferior status, either within my society or within an interpersonal relationship, unless you can convince me of the propriety of this, I will oppose it. My uh, concern is with the kind of pain and deprivation that accrues to my getting entrapped in false ideals. And by that, I mean that I get entrapped in ideals uh, that tend to translate or transform 
the reality that I experience um, as if it were the ideal. In other words, I am made to see reality as if it is the best that things can be, as a result of which I am disabused of all of my incentives to even strive to produce a better world or to come to terms that might enable me to live the kind of dignified existence that's important for me to live. And I think it's very important here that this whole attempt or this whole process of denying us the incentives to struggle against injustice, against unfairness, against bias and prejudice, this is a kind of suffering that I think has become much more efficient given the means that we have in modern times to produce and disseminate ideas, images, and, 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 and reputations about each other. I'm reminded, in fact, of the comments of the French scholar Guy Debord who talks about the uh, degrading of the human faculty of encounter. That is to say that we are so, we are so affected uh, by the images that we internalize that even when you and I are sitting together and we are talking to each other, I cannot see you, I cannot feel you, I cannot actually experience you because all those images that I've internalized have degraded my faculty for human encounter. And so we end up not even being able to relate to each other. And this ultimately, I think, has a tendency to heighten the ability of the powers to be to enlist us in regimes of domination in which the domination itself is raised beyond critique. That is to say, we are so normalized to these forms of domination that we can't even man critiques against it. This is the kind of suffering um, that I'm interested uh, in here, here today. Now, um, I think it's important as well uh, in this capacity that one of the reasons why it's so important to confront this particular mode of of domination or, or suffering uh, is, is because it tends to feed on itself. That is to say, I live in a society um, where all the means of producing the standards and the images by which I'll be judged as a human being are monopolized by someone else. As a result of which, I do not get to contribute to the criterion on the basis of which I'm going to be judged in society. And in that context, Whatever respect, whatever dignity, whatever achievements I'm able to realize ultimately end up reinforcing the authority of those who define the criterion of value to define the criterion of value. And so I end up ultimately sort of working against myself. If I lose, I lose. Even if I win, however, I might lose. Because what I end up doing is reinforcing the power of those who have defined me to define me. And this is one of the reasons why the very invisibility of suffering is more, I think, insidious than those very visible means uh, by which we inflict pain uh, and deprivation on others. Now, in the context of America, it, it has long been thought that suffering uh, was, uh, was some sort of exclusive preserve of uh, black folks uh, and, uh, and minorities. In fact, uh, the very term suffering itself, when it's mentioned in the context of any kind of social political discussion, it usually connotes or connotates uh, either non-whites or 
perhaps we should say now even, even off-white, off-white people. Um, I think, however, um, that, that the present state in which, we, in which we exist affords us the opportunity, and by that I mean some of the events that have taken place, and from our perspective as a Muslim, certainly since uh, the events of 9-11, I think we're in a position uh, to see through uh, this whole notion that suffering uh, certainly in, the ter in terms of, of normalized domination is something that only black folks, black folks experience. I think, however, what is important about this is that to the extent that uh, white folks and others are drawn into regimes of normalized domination, I think that that, ten that tends to reinforce uh, the degree to which black people suffer as a result of the false definitions of value that permeate our society. But I think it's also important for us to note that black folks are not the only ones who have been inducted or who struggle with the whole issue of being inducted into regimes of false ideals. Um, and I think that by way of, of, of examples, I think that right now as a nation we are uh, sort of uh, obsessed with the issue uh, of security uh, and in the, among other issues. Uh, uh, and I think that in the name of security, um, we can be convinced to, to do a lot of things, uh, to accept a lot of things, uh, to endorse a lot of things. And I think that, again, if we think about our reality as, as Americans who live right here in the United States of America, who don't live in Afghanistan, who don't live in Iraq, who don't live anywhere overseas, but who live right here, if we consider the following, maybe we'll get a sense of what I'm trying to get at here. I think the worst year of American casualties in Afghanistan uh, was 2007. And if I'm not mistaken, there were 315 American casualties in Afghanistan in 2007. Now, of course, Afghanistan is a war zone. They're fighting a real war there. That includes engagement, drones, the whole nine. 315 casualties. Uh, it was mentioned that I'm originally from Philadelphia. Uh, and if you're from Philadelphia, you understand that once from Philadelphia, always from Philadelphia. <laughs> so uh, I have, a, I have a, a, a visceral attachment to the city. Does anybody know how many murders there were in the city of Philadelphia in 2007? Over 400. Does anybody know how many murders there were in LA in 2007? About 389. How about Detroit? How about Chicago? If we are concerned about security, about the security of our lives, and we are living in a country that produces upwards of 17,000 murders a year, how can we justify investing the resources that we invest in a place like Afghanistan versus the kind of resources that we, that we invest in our cities? And the point that I'm making here is not simply to point out the unfairness of this, but the fact that many of those who support this very distribution of our resources 
honestly believe that they are promoting their own interest in terms of securing their own safety. They honestly believe that by winning a war in Afghanistan, we will be safer in the city of Philadelphia, or in Detroit, or in Chicago. Or maybe it's that I'm naive, and maybe they, they really don't care. But I'm not that old to be that cynical yet. So I'll chalk it up to a false ideal. Now, I think that as I try to come to a close here, with regard to the role of religion in this whole business of suffering, and I mean suffering in the sense of normalized domination, and let me speak from the perspective of, of Islam uh, in particular, I think that it's real important for us to know that clearly intelligent people, people who are highly educated, uh, can be drawn into regimes of domination that lead them to support ideas, to support values, to support policies, to support perceptions that are inconsistent with their own thinking, with their own set of values. And in that regard, I think it's really important for us as a nation to begin to think about how we can arrive at ways of penetrating, penetrating the pre-conscience. Uh, because clearly, our, our minds are working in the interest of values, sentiments, and sensibilities that precede our faculties of reason. And they are directing our faculties of reason in this, that, or the other way. And until we penetrate the pre-conscience, and rearrange the values on the basis of which we act in society. Our reason will continue to serve the values that are implanted or manipulated by the powers that be. For me, this is the real role of religion. And it is the real role of Islam as a religion. Islam as a religion, from its inception, has fundamentally been about not the business of domination or conquest, but ultimately the business of empowering individuals to be masters in the sense of having some control over the pre-conscience, over the passions that animate and direct them as individuals. And I think that while Islam has, of recent years, hit a bump in sort of uh, modern times, so much so that when we think about religion in the modern world, certainly when we think about religion uh, as a problem, we tend to think about, we tend to think about Islam. <clears throat> For me, however, I think it's really important to note that people, black, white, and others, in societies all over the world, especially in our own, are suffering, and not suffering from sort of direct physical acts of the infliction of pain and psychological suffering, but suffering in the sense of being denied the incentives to revolt against that which deep down inside they know is wrong. And I think that until the pre-conscience uh, can be rehabilitated, this kind of suffering is going to perpetuate itself. And 
for Islam, like any other religion, if it is to avoid the biggest threat to religion in any society, which is not persecution, but is, it is apathy born of irrelevance, until Islam can get back to its primary and fundamental message of empowering people to be masters over the preconscience, then I think that Islam may meet a fate similar to other religions that we've seen come into crisis in the modern world. I'll stop there, and I look forward to the comments of my, my dear brother, Cornell West. First, it's an honor, privilege, and blessing to be here in this new space. This is a magnificent space, so let's just give the space a hand. It's called Free of Space, led by the visionary and courageous leader, our dear sister, Akiba Clay. Give Sister Clay a hand. She's doing a wonderful job, wonderful staff. Brothers, I have to deeply appreciate the work that you're doing. One of the reasons why I wanted to be here is because it's so very important that we not only accent, but try to expand the crucial presence of brothers and sisters who are followers and actors of Islam. That all the lies told about Islam, all of the misperceptions, all of the misunderstandings that are perpetrated day in and day out in the mainstream press, given what's going on in the world, in the Middle East, Asia, United States, it's very important here at Princeton that we have a robust conversation, that we have a critical engagement with the very rich and deep legacy of towering figures, philosophers, theologians, activists who represent Islam at its best, Islam at its medium, Islam at its worst. Same is true for Judaism, same is true for Christianity, same is true for Hinduism, any religion. And as you know, we still have a long way to go come to terms with the complexity of Islamic civilizations over time and space, going all the way back to 8th century up to this very moment. And so I see this moment as, a, as an example of Princeton trying to meet that challenge. And I am so glad to be in conversation with my very dear brother. We've had conversations at the American Political Science Association. He was kind enough to be one of the uh, commentators of my book, D Democracy Matters. And we had a wonderful time. I'm talking about the distinguished professor at the University of Michigan, my dear brother, Sherman Jackson. Give him a hand again. Give him a hand again. Appreciate your brother. Blessed to have you here. I'm not going to be long, but I want to open this up. First, at, as was noted, at the metaphysical level of how do we talk about the ultimate meaning of suffering? What is the fundamental significance of suffering? I would argue that we really don't know. I don't care if you're Christian, Islam, Hindu, or whatever. I think that there's, there's a sense in which it's a mystery why particular babies die at one, why particular people drop dead at 35. It's a mystery why certain dogs choose to kill certain folk early in the morning. I used to have a paper out, and the dog was on me every morning, so I was glad somebody was praying for me. But I could have died. And that, that was no... Political, social, cultural significance is just Negro bitten died. 
Which is to say what? Which is the problem of Dostoevsky that he raised in the Brothers Karamazov. The surds and the absurds that create black holes in our canopies of meaning that we attempt to impose on the world. There is no theoretical resolution of it whatsoever. I am a Christian because I'm willing to look those black holes in the faith, face and still make a leap of faith in the midst of that mystery. And I'll, I'll, I'll listen to my Islamic brothers and sisters, how you all try to work that out. Because I don't understand why Haiti over and over again is attacked by nature. I understand French imperialism. I understand American indifference to the grand free republic of Toussaint L'Overture. But I don't understand those darn hurricanes over and over and over again hitting those precious brothers and sisters, those priceless brothers and sisters, year after year after year. Which means what for me, then, anytime you talk about suffering, which is a species of the problem of evil, undeserved suffering, unnecessary misery, unwarranted pain, you're talking about the conclusion of an Aristotelian practical syllogism which says, what kind of life are you going to lead? What kind of action are you going to take? What kind of courage are you going to exercise? This is where I, I fundamentally agree with my dear brother, Professor Jackson. In the end, the problem of suffering has to do with, one, mustering the courage to try to understand the context that allows this suffering to flower and flourish. Two, mustering the courage to do something about it, which means shattering forms of indifference. In the end, the problem of suffering for me has to do with a chilly soul, a coarsened conscience, a hardened heart, and a cowardliness when other folk are suffering and you turn your back and become well-adjusted to injustice. That's the challenge. And as a Christian, for me, the question is, well, those who take seriously the first century Palestinian Jew named Jesus who life becomes an enactment, a part of a story that says, this is the way you respond. Out of deep hypersensitivity to the suffering of others. And be willing to sacrifice. Be willing to do as much as you can about it. To bring whatever intellectual, moral, spiritual, political resources you can to hold at arm's length what? What are the two species of indifference we should invoke here? The great rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, when he says indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. Indifference is the essence of inhumanity, George Bernard Shaw says in The Devil's Disciple, that early play of his. But William James, probably America's greatest public philosopher, he says indifference is the one trait that makes the very angels weep. What are the species of indifference? Deliberate ignorance, willful blindness. Now let's come to black suffering. modern world. Vicious forms of white supremacy, degrading black bodies, viewing black ideas as abominations, exploiting their labor, violating rights and liberties, degrading their culture, trying to convince black people that they're not just less beautiful, less intelligent, and less moral, but for 244 years of white supremacist slavery and for 88 years of white supremacist Jim and Jane Crow, both of those species of American terrorism, you attempt to ensure these people are so intimidated and so scared and so feeling so helpless and 
hopeless that they never can believe in themselves, never view themselves as agents who come together, organize and mobilize and try to overcome their suffering. And when they do attempt to do it, and this has fundamentally been what is at the center of the lie called white supremacy, we are going to make black love a crime. If you love black people, and you're enslaved. If you love black people and you're Jim Crow, and anytime you love folk, you can't stand the fact that they're being treated unjustly. You loathe the fact they're being treated unfairly, so you have to do something about it. But if you really love these folk, it's a crime. You're going to get killed. That's why they put a bounty on Ida B. Wells' head. They put a bounty on Frederick Douglass' head. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. was called what? The most dangerous man in America by the FBI. We won't even talk about that Islamic brother named Malcolm X hunting him down every minute of his life. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad, all on the same list. You can argue less militant, but what we're talking when we talk about black suffering with the socioeconomic, that normalized domination that my dear brother's talking about. We're going to make sure these people are niggerized all the way down. And you niggerize the people by transforming human beings into scared, intimidated, helpless, hopeless folk who don't believe in themselves and only understand themselves through the white normative gaze. They can only understand themselves through the very culture that is involved in the bombardment of subordinating them. So black love becomes a crime, black history becomes a curse, and black hope becomes a joke. And the alternative is what? To somehow assimilate, integrate in the most narrow, vulgarized forms in order to survive as you lose your integrity, lose your sense of who you are, and in fact, in many ways, even lose your sense of humanity in order to survive. You wear the mask, as the great Paul Lawrence Dunbar said, one of the grand poets from Dayton, Ohio. You undergo the routine, the double consciousness that W.B. Du Bois talked about. You can never really be your, your full self because that full self is a threat to a white supremacist status quo. Psychic suffering, political, economic. Now it's true. So many of the great freedom fighters, black freedom struggle, have been religious people. Douglas, licensed. AME minister until he lost his faith and read a lot of Ludwig Forbach. Pulled back, became a humanist. Marcus Garvey grew up a Methodist, died a Catholic. It's hard to know what he was in between. <laughs> Just a complicated freedom fighter who loved black people enough to organize him all around the world and actually died for black people given his imprisonment in New Orleans and then shipped off back to Haiti and on to London. You see. Martin Luther King Jr., Deep Christian, but very, very distinctive kind of Christian. Who fundamentally believed that for the most part, black suffering was part of a cycle of domination, oppression, bigotry, revenge. And the only way you break the cycle is by trying to make your life a sacrifice that exemplifies the opposite of all of those. Love, and of course justice is what love looks like in public. And he was a deep Democrat, because deep democracy is what justice looks like in practice. And deep democracy is just making sure those slides don't call everyday people are at the center of how you understand the world. 
They're in the prison industrial complex. They're dealing with dilapidated housing. They're dealing with disgraceful school systems. They're dealing with levels of unemployment, underemployment at a depression like before the depression hits, before the catastrophe hits Wall Street. That's the lens through which you view the world. But that's a prophetic slice. We're not here to talk about the worst of Christianity, the worst of Islam, because that's the history of gangsters. Every religious tradition has gangsters, thugs in high positions. Got to be honest about that. True for Judaism, true for Hindu. And we can teach a whole course on black cowardice, black gangsterism, and so forth. That's important to keep in mind. Because every black preacher, not Martin Luther King, every black Muslim, not Malcolm X. In fact, they are the exceptions. But they do set standards. High standards doing what? Resisting black suffering. Not stopping there. It spills over. Brown suffering, yellow suffering, white suffering, and so forth. But it starts on the chocolate side of town. And why is that very important? Because when you've been bombarded by white supremacy for so long, it's easy to generate black people who love everybody else but black people as a way of being successful as a way of gaining upward mobility. And the tradition, the prophetic tradition that I want to put forward here in our conversation is one that is tied to a deep democratic tradition, not just rights and liberties, but looking at the world from the vantage point of, for me, the cross as a Christian. The cross is just the least of these echoes of the 25th chapter of Matthew, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the oppressed, the marginalized, the weak, the poor. Some people call it liberation theology. It's just a matter of bearing witness to, for me, what it means to be a decent human being who takes prophetic Christianity seriously, takes prophetic Islam seriously, takes prophetic Judaism seriously, takes prophetic Hinduism seriously like a like Gandhi himself. You see. And I think, last but not least, I do want to say that because we're living in an American empire in relative decline, losing its self-confidence in the world, its citizens are losing its trust and confidence in the government, big business, big finance across the board. And we're living in a civilization where, an empire where the younger generation more and more are tied to such market-driven conceptions of what it is to be human, addicted to success, drugged by the quest for fame, preoccupied with buying and selling, status, reputation. So what, isn't that, hasn't that always been the case in America? Well, yes. Hasn't that always been the case in human history in some sense? Yes. But this younger generation has been so thoroughly permeated with market sensibilities that it's very difficult for them to have a sense of history that connects them to the best prophetic figures. That part of the decline makes it difficult to reinvigorate and revitalize democratic possibilities when there's nobody there who wants to fight for it. That's why you can have a prison industrial complex that quadruples since 1970, no major movement to highlight it. You can have the most dilapidated educational systems in the history of the 20th century, well, not the 20th century, since World War II. Where is the major focus in movement? 
Tea Party folk make more noise than folk concerned about folk in the prison industrial complex or dilapidated schools. Why? Don't have time. How are you spending your time? Market time. Well, prophetic religious time, prophetic Islamic time, prophetic Christian time, prophetic Judaism time. So you got to stop. You got to think about something else. You have to orient yourself toward being great, not just being successful. But helping others, not just upward mobility. Difficult to do, understandably. That's part of the decline. That's part of the decay. And I believe that in the end, uh, capitalist civilization in general, American culture, empire in particular, will continue to decline if there's not a renaissance of prophetic Christianity, prophetic Judaism, prophetic Islam, prophetic Hinduism, and among our secular comrades, a willingness to think seriously about public interest in regard to the most vulnerable. And if we don't do it, greed, the lust, the indifference will more and more saturate every nook and cranny. So that's part of our challenge, and I think that uh, we can help each other do that. Thank you very much, and uh, Dr. Jackson will begin with the first question. Uh, I guess my first question is, 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 is one that uh, uh, I'm really uh, thankful to have the opportunity to ask you of all the people I could think of to ask this question, uh, because I value uh, your insight into these matters so much. Uh, we've been talking about the the necessity of transcending indifference, yes. uh, the, the paralysis of the soul, uh, the, the, the sort of willing manipulation of the preconscience, as it were. Uh, and it seems to me that somehow uh, part of that process has to be in attaching ourselves to values that are transcendent of the goings-ons in the society that are manipulated by the forces that be. Yes, now. Right the whole question of transcendent values, uh, and particularly those with a, a, a religious uh, violence to them, seems to come into a certain kind of conflict with uh, philosophical liberalism. And so my question to you is, uh, what kind of conversation, in light of the kind of crisis that you and I have been trying to, to lay out, uh, do you think we need to have uh, with liberalism? Mm. Well, I appreciate the question. I mean, what we'd have to define what we mean by liberalism, because there's a sense in which uh, the liberalism of the 1960s, of course, has been so transformed and transmogrified into a kind of uh, mediocre neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And that's like a lot of folk in the, in the cabinet of our dear brother Barack Obama. Uh, neoliberals are persons who have been promoting unregulated, unfettered markets, who oftentimes view redistribution of wealth through the IRS rather than direct. When the banks are in trouble, it's direct. But when poor people are in trouble, it's got to be tax credits. Always it, shows, it shows a lower priority. Uh, so that in the past, you know, the liberalism, the liberalism of LBJ vis-a-vis -vis, uh, civil rights that took courage. Courage. Tremendous courage. Uh, it's hard to find liberals like that. Russell Feingold's one of them in the Senate, but he's one of the few. 
but, but it's neoliberalism, the neoliberalism has taken over, and that's a tilt toward the right, a tilt toward the center, you see. So I would argue that the only way in which we can actually recover the kind of resistance that you and I were talking about in terms of normalized domination is through examples mm -hmm. to the younger generation mm -hmm. to make those examples attractive so they're not seduced by the mediocre neoliberalism or what was once ascendant, neoconservatism, which is now running to a dead end with Wall Street and Katrina and Iraq and Afghanistan, which is the Bush, both administration and the end of the age of Reagan. That is now discredited. But there's no alternative yet. Mm. And it's only examples. Examples are the go-kart of, of judgment, Manuel Kant says. And uh, the younger generation has to have their vision uh, uh, redirected toward examples of persons who go beyond the liberalism and neoliberalism. Mm. That's the only way you create social motion and social movements, and we're far from that, but that's the only way out, I would argue. It's the only way out. Ask you a question. You got it. Yes. That, do you see prophetic Islam expanding, increasing, deepening in the United States? Well, first of all, let me, uh, let me try and uh, wade my way through the, the malaise of, of, of terminology. Yes. And yes. I think that uh, w one of the things that, uh, I mean, because this is part of the challenge of Islam. Uh, in America, um, uh, Islam in America uh, has some very uh, unique challenges. Uh, and part of the challenge, and let me speak from my own perspective uh, as a black American Muslim, because I think that there are so many stories out there that uh, they, can all, they can't all be uh, sort of represented in, in, in a single person. But for me, uh, the real issue, as I try to articulate in my remarks, is that uh, Islam in America has got to get serious about America. Uh, and by that I mean that uh, intellectually, America has got to become uh, the center of religious, serious, indulged contemplation in terms of what it means to be a Muslim uh, of faith and a Muslim of responsibility and Muslim of courage. You cannot simply manifest your courage, your commitment to Islam, your knowledge of Islam in terms of what you articulate about Afghanistan or Palestine or Iraq and have nothing to say about the many issues that we've been talking about here. All right? And I think that uh, the, 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 the issue for Muslims right now, uh, it's a learning process. Um, Islam in America, certainly within the black American community, uh, it, it's still a new phenomenon. And uh, right now, there is the challenge of how to master that grand legacy of Islam to the point of getting it to speak effectively, and as you would put it, prophetically, to the realities of American society. Uh, this has been my whole project for the last 15 years. Uh, and I think that uh, for it to be a something that has real value, real staying power, and the ability to inspire, because I do think that the ability to inspire is important, uh, it cannot simply be pragmatic. It's got to be principled. And that means that there has to be time spent agonizing 
over how one recon reconciles the dictates of scripture with the realities of, of society. Uh, and that's a process that uh, we are, we are uh, doggedly uh, engaged in now. And I think that what might not be apparent to a lot of the people in this room is that one of the silver linings, if there can be such a thing, and you know, as a Muslim in America, you got to be careful about how you talk about these things. Uh, but if, if, there, if there could be said to be a silver lining in the tragedy of 9-11, it has been precisely that uh, Muslims have been made to see that they're going to have to get serious about America. Uh, and that the, the arena of their activity is going to have to be first and foremost America. So they're going to have to invest in America. And, and not just in their, uh, I was uh, at, a, at, a, at a banquet yesterday with uh, Reverend Jackson, and he talked about uh, uh, the necessity of, of not getting so caught up in saving your little room that you allow the house to burn down. Because if the house burns down, the room is going to burn down. And I think that Muslims are really coming in uh, to an understanding of, of precisely that reality. Uh, and that there are a number of manifestations of this going on around uh, around, around the country, and uh, if, uh, if I personally have anything to do with it, uh, this will continue and it will become stronger. No question about it. Oh, no, that's, that's powerfully put. I mean, I wonder to what degree it's a matter of also what it means to be an immigrant, a relatively mm -hmm. new immigrant. Oftentimes in America, immigrants come to America and uh, do find opportunities, work very hard, defer gratification, move up, look back on George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and don't understand them right. as not, don't understand them as both freedom fighters and slave holders. So when the new Muslims look at America's past, when you look at the past, you can't just look at the good stuff, you gotta look at the underside as well. To be an American is to be immersed in both a society that's been able to hammer out rights and liberties because of people willing to sacrifice, but also deep legacies of, of, of white supremacy that still permeate up to this very day, and if you're going to embrace America, you got to embrace the whole thing. You got to embrace the whole thing. Why? Because you're going to be dealing with those problems, even as new immigrants. And that's true whether you're from Ethiopia, that's true whether you're from Asia, I mean from India, or whether you're from Iraq or what have you, which is what you're calling for, engaging well, America past, present, and future. Absolutely. And, and this, is a, this is a very burning conversation uh, in, 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 the Muslim community, uh, in the Muslim community today. Um, uh, there are some realizations that are well in place now that were not in place, uh, you know, 20, 20 years ago. Uh, Muslim immigrants to the United States are even becoming uh, much more aware of the reality of race. And the reality of race is a social construct, not as just a, a sort of a legal uh, construct that you check a box. I mean, you can be legally white, uh, and then some people fly some planes into a building and you become socially non-white. Uh, and that leaves you with the reality of non-whiteness uh, in, in a society that has been in large part defined by white supremacy and how you're going to deal with that. Right, uh, right, so those right. conversations uh, are, are ongoing now. And I think that, for me, the biggest challenge for Islam in America, in a sense, uh, becomes becoming, on the one hand, uh, self-authenticating uh, to the point that it is what American Muslims think about America that determines what American Muslims do about America not what Muslims in some other part of the world might think about America. 
this is a very serious uh, a challenge uh, that uh, that is presently uh, being uh, being engaged. Uh, and then I think that the uh, uh, the, the other thing is that uh, Muslims have to be very careful about overindulging the sort of the impulse to become pragmatic, by which I mean that um, we become overly uh, interested uh, in protecting our interests rather than protecting our principles. Uh, and I think that's a problem that uh, the Muslim community uh, has to come to terms with. Uh, but these are ongoing and very vigorous uh, uh, conversations, and uh, my own anticipation is that uh, they're, they're going to get better and better as we proceed. But that's really a process of Americanization, too. But you Americanization... become more pragmatic, more opportunistic, yes. more concerned with just your interests. If you're concerned with principles, you're too visionary, you're too idealistic, you that's need right. to grow up and make, deal with the mainstream and some kind of... Uh, they say pragmatic. I hate to use that word pragmatic, because John Dewey just turns over, turns over in his grave. Mm -hmm. It's opportunistic for the most part. There you part. go. Uh, and that's very different. Pragmatists have visions and ideals, and they try to apply them to varying circumstances. But opportunists are just grabbing at opportunities in order to pursue their own interests. It's more Machiavellian than it is Deweyan uh, in that sense. And that is very, very American at its worst. We've had some, some wonderful examples of the other. But, uh, but you know, for me, one of the things that, uh, that, 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 that um, Muslims bring, that, that prophetic Islam brings to America is the sense of America as both a democratic experiment and as an empire. Because mm -hmm. it's hard in or the... Uh, here to see it. In, in the Islamic world, people know the, the relation between Saudi Arabia and Washington. So when Hillary Clinton says, oh, Iran is moving to become a military dictatorship, we have nothing to do with military dictators. And they're walking around holding hands with the head of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, you know what I mean? Like, you know, prophetic Islamic folks say, please, America. I was born at night, but not last night. <laughs> Don't insult my intelligence. And the same would be true in regard to uh, the Middle East. The people know that a Palestinian life does not have the same value as an Israeli life. If 500 Israelis are, are shot dead, there's going to be a press conference in the middle of the night. If 500 Palestinians are shot dead, silence. That says something about the value of a life. So you begin to raise questions. Well, what is it then about America's foreign policy? Because most of us inside of the United States rarely engage in public critique of U.S. foreign policy. Whereas when you come in as a Muslim, you've already had some exposure to the underside of the imperial tentacles of the American government. And that gives you a very different perspective. It seems to me that those of us who have been on the inside for a long time have much to learn in that regard. And yet I hear what you're saying. On the other hand, when you get here, you can't just be obsessed with Absolutely. what's going on somewhere else when you got Trenton, Philadelphia, Harlem, Southside, Chicago, East Los Angeles coming at you. Yeah, and I think that I think that the, the, you know one of the problems that, that 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 we confront as a Muslim community, and I think that you know it may be hard for many of the people in the room to to really uh, fathom what's going on here. I think that we have to think back to some earlier communities, think back to the Catholic community, for example, maybe 75, 80 years ago, uh, and its relationship with Rome. Uh, and I'm not talking about a sort of a, a, a political linkage uh, as much as I'm talking about the whole phenomenon of religious authority. Uh, uh, and, 
and this is even uh, uh, sort of promoted and perpetuated by the powers that be here. Uh, when you see representative, uh, representatives of Islam on the television screen, or you even hear them on NPR or whatever, it is rarely a Muslim who was born and raised in this country. And one of the reasons for that is that the whole notion uh, uh, of, of an, an American expression of Islam being an authentic expression of Islam as opposed to some kind of exceptional sort of not having arrived yet uh, pseudo-Islamic uh, articulation, uh, that's still out there. That's out there in parts of the Muslim community. That's out there in the, in, in the general community. So what we, we, we have to contend with is the whole notion of resting enough interpretive authority as Muslims to be self-representative in articulations of Islam and self-representative in the agenda that we establish for Muslims in America. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a very long, it's a very difficult uh, a process uh, and it ain't for the faint-hearted. What would be the best examples of prophetic Islam in America right now? Organizations or alliances, networks? Yeah, I, I, I think that there, there are some pockets. I mean, the one, the one that really comes to my mind is, uh, is an organization out of Chicago called, uh, called Iman, Inner City Muslim Action Network. Uh, and uh, they're located in Chicago, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, uh, impressive amalgamation of uh, a black American uh, uh, and immigrant uh, Muslims coming together for the service of the people. Uh, they have uh, uh, job training facilities, uh, and by the way, it's not just for Muslims, it's for Muslims and non-Muslims. Uh, they, uh, they have uh, uh, re-entry programs for prisoners. Uh, coming out of the penitentiary, a major, major, ma nobody wants to touch this issue. Uh, and it's, it's a major, major issue uh, in the community. Uh, they have uh, clinics, free clinics uh, in the community uh, where uh, people with illnesses uh, come in, uh, doctors donate their time, uh, and they get free, uh, free medical care. Uh, they have a number of, uh, of, uh, of, of activities. In fact, I'm going out there about three weeks from now uh, for the annual fundraiser to, uh, to be able to continue uh, this, very kind of, this very kind of process. Uh, so there are a number of, of, of entities out there uh, uh, like that. And again, I think that for Muslims in America, uh, you will see uh, what you refer to as uh, much more uh, prophetic Islam. Uh, once this process of, of consummating the whole issue of having arrived at a level of, of religious authority uh, that this community becomes self-authenticating. Self uh, I, I don't think I can stress that, uh, I can stress that enough. Uh, but once that happens, uh, I think the sky will be the limit. And I think that particularly given the insights of the black American Muslim community with regard to how we understand America, how we understand American society, uh, the various and sundry epistemologies in terms of how we are able to, to look at American history, uh, to see ourselves as citizens in the world through the prism of the black experience in America. I think all of that will, will parlay uh, into, a, into a very, uh, a very uh, I think, uh, a vibrant uh, 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 Islamic activism uh, in, in, in America. But again, but again, it's, it's, it's about laying those laying those foundations. Yeah. 
Can I just ask a personal question? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, it's not personal as in uh, reality TV. But, uh, uh, but, but, but why is it that are Muslim? What, what, what is it distinctive about Islam that gives you an angle of vision? I, I think about this myself. Why do I remain a Christian? You know, because I mean, I could be wrong. I could deeply be wrong. I don't think I am. But I need to raise that question. Most of my hero, heroes are atheists. Samuel Beckett and Chekhov and others. But they had deep love. But I think they're wrong on the God question. <laughs> That, uh, that, but, but, but why do you, why do you remain a, a Muslim? What, what, what is it about Islam that just seizes your heart, mind, and soul? Is that too personal, brother? No, 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 no. no it is, but, but it's, too, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's too late now. It's too late now. It's already out there now. <laughs> You know, you know, you know, um, this really, in some sense, goes back to the question about liberalism that I asked you, which, mm. in a sense, was, it was not about sort of political liberalism, Democrats versus, uh, versus, uh, uh, versus Republicans, uh, liberals versus conservatives, but it was more about uh, liberalism in the form of Enlightenment rationalism. Uh, but, I, I, and in that vein, I think that... Um, I, I could rationalize, I think, a very perhaps uh, uh, eloquent uh, explanation for why I'm a Muslim, but I think that on the most basic fundamental level, um, I, th I, I think that my experience uh, echoes the experience of a, uh, of a white woman uh, I met once. Uh, I was teaching at a, a, a program in, in New Mexico for high school teachers who were teaching, I think it was uh, world history, and they had world religions as a part of the component, so they came in to learn about Islam. And she came up to me one night at dinner with tears in her eyes, and she said, uh, I had a conversation with my husband on the phone a little while ago, and it was a very sort of scary one, uh, because I said to him, uh, honey, uh, I I I've discovered uh, that, um, the religious beliefs that I've had, the fundamental religious impulses, beliefs, and sensibilities uh, that I've had for most of my life, I discovered that there's a name for them, and it's a slap. Uh, so for me, uh, uh, Islam seemed to resonate with the religious sensibilities uh, that I had had, and those religious sensibilities are primarily sensibilities that say that, you know, it's important not simply to, re to live righteously or simply to live fully, but the real stuff out of which a dignified existence is made is how we combine the values of living righteously and fully. And that, to me, is, is fundamentally uh, what Islam represents. Uh, uh, it is a religion fundamentally of struggle. Uh, you can't be a serious Muslim uh, without accepting uh, the fact that life is a struggle. We look out on the world, we see it as it is, and we feel compelled to try to make it closer to what it should be. Uh, and so for, for, for me, 
uh, religion is not this sort of uh, this sort of hyper rationalized thing. There's a, there's a role for reason in it. Yes, don't, yes, don't get me wrong here. Sure, sure, uh, sure. But it, it, it's not one uh, that uh, that is purely a matter of uh, sort of uh, philosophy in religious terms. For me, religion is a is a is my religion is a is a lived reality that is confirmed in my my own. Uh, 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 dynamic, uh, uh, almost tragic uh, relationship with the divine as I live it every day. That, that's me. Oh, no, that, that's now, now, I'm not going to get personal. <laughs> oh, no. no you, you can get personal with me, though, brother. That's all. I got a memoir out there that just lays the whole thing out in anyway. <laughs> 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 Trying to get me to lay some of that out? No, 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 no. Your, your response was, was on the mark. Uh, I, I, I wanted after, to ask you. After Dr. Jackson's question, we'll bring the audience in. Oh, okay. So maybe I should get personal. No, no, it's okay. We, we no, want no. you to get personal. No, no. Let, uh, let, let me say this. Uh, the, my, my question was, you know, uh, I didn't talk about it in my remarks, but uh, I wrote a whole book <clears throat> about the problem of uh, Islam and the problem of black suffering. Oh, yeah. The, the, the book itself was a an attempt to uh, put the, the work, uh, the, the, the towering work, the, the, the really controversial classic work of William R. Jones, oh. uh, Is God a White Racist, into conversation uh, with Islamic theology. Not as simply I understood it, but as it's represented in the various schools of theology that Muslims themselves recognize as being, as being orthodox. Um, um, what, in your estimation, uh, explains uh, what I understood uh, to be the rather slow and incomplete uh, response to Jones, and, and what do you think the response should have been? That's well, one, I want to salute you for going back to William Jones. It's the most important book written on the problem of, of theodicy as it relates to black suffering. It's the most powerful critique of liberation theology. Of course, James Cone's response, James Cone did respond in God of the Oppressed, but he himself acknowledged that it was not uh, the strongest response. I don't think there really has been a response. I don't think there can be. That's part of what I meant by there's no theoretical resolution of it. Yeah, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a theoretical response at all. It's, 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 a, it's a life lived, and that life lived, lived in different contexts. Uh, uh, I think, I think what William Jones did was lay out a, a set of questions, put forward some arguments. It's like David Hume's dialogues on natural religion. Yeah, but I think, I, I, think that, I, think, I think if the issue is the evidentiary proof that God is not a white racist, I mean, of course, I mean, you know, it would be difficult to produce that under any circumstance. Sure, the empirical evidence. But a theological uh, 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 response having to do with how we understand the nature of God itself uh, would seem to be a, a prerequisite for establishing any kind of relationship with God. So that if we don't have a theological response, then what does that do to religion? Well, you can have religion without theology, thank yes, God. And, and if that's yeah, what we're going to do. God, yeah, you can have a pneumatology. There's a certain spirit that you're trying to stay in contact with, the way our Russian Orthodox mm -hmm. brothers and sisters do. I mean, part of the problem is you got three options. You can opt with William Jones and become a humanist 
and a kind of agnostic and member of the Unitarian Church. Because Unitarian brothers and sisters, whosoever will, let them come. You got agnostics and atheists as well as theists all in the same service. So you got a complicated ritual. Or you, you can become a uh, defender of a finite God, a God who is in the same boat as human beings, and if the boat goes down, that God goes down too. That God might be a little bigger than the human beings, but still a finite God. Now, whether that God is worthy of worship, question. Most of the black theologians would argue that a finite God is not worthy of worship. If the God is right next to you, catching as much hell as you are, why are you going to worship this mob? Want to be able to look up and say there's some power coming your way. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, then you fall back into the orthodox position, which is the, the claim about all-knowing and all-powerful all and benevolent, you see. And that's where the leap of faith, that's in part without what I was uh, putting forward. Uh, but it was, it was kind of a uh, more meta-theological position about the attempt to sidestep certain theological moves and a response to the problem itself. But that's, that, that's why, and I'm so glad you went back to William Jones because that text uh, is just, uh, it's, and the fact that he was turned down for tenure at Yale. I didn't know that. Yes, he was. Yale would be ashamed of itself. Ashamed of itself, you see, down to Florida State. I, I, want, I want to cheat and ask, ask one more question. It, it'll be as short as Professor West makes it. <laughs> I'll make it very sure we got wonderful voices here. But we can, we can, we can go a little overtime. Where's Sister McKeever? Yeah, because when you're dealing with black folk and Islamic <laughs> we move by the spirit, too. You know. That's right. This calendar time ain't got nothing to do with but, it. But, 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 but you, 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 asked, you asked me um, um, on, on a very personal note to, uh, to explain why I, I, I am a Muslim, what, what is it that sustains me uh, a, 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 as a Muslim? Um, and I guess my question to you would be, um, why is that a question? No, because I'm trying to learn. I think, because maybe, I mean maybe, maybe I got to think about becoming a Muslim. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, 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 <laughs> there's something distinctive in the Islamic civilization, Islamic tradition, that incorporates my own mm -hmm. Christian faith and that also goes beyond it. It incorporates Judaism and goes beyond it in that sense. And so I say to myself, I mean, one, I think it takes tremendous audacity for anybody to be a religious person mm -hmm. in a world with so much misery and suffering and people catching hell and so forth. You figure, you know, what are you talking about? What God are you worshiping? Have you actually seen what most of the world looks like, one half a billion people living off a dollar a day, all the wealth going, I mean, you know, what, what is it? Then you say, well, no, well, God can create a soul, but God can, can, doesn't create a good soul. That's true for Allah and the Christian God and the Judaic God. But we have to choose to be good. God doesn't create automatons or machines. We have to choose to be good, and human beings make bad choices. Then we begin to account for all of the suffering and misery, the bad choices that human beings make and so forth. But on another level, you say to yourself, well, it's got to be something more than that, you see, that there has to be something about a religious mode of being in the world that is just a truthful way of being 
Because I, I really do believe that, that, that the Christian faith has fundamental truths about the world. See, I believe that love as the one thing, a force that tries to break the dominant cycle of bigotry and domination and so forth, is true. I really do. And that's since I'm like Martin King. In belief, you know, I'm not willing to get shot at 39. But, uh, <laughs> but in belief, I'm like Brother Martin in that sense, you see. And that is, I think, has something to do with a certain Christian way of looking at it from the vantage point especially of a black a black perspective. I also believe that Durkheim is right. I believe that for me, I remain a Christian partly out of ancestor appreciation. The best Negroes I ever knew were Christians. My mama, my daddy, my grandfather, my granddaddy, my aunt, my uncle, the folk I run into, Martin, and so forth. I said, wait a minute, if these folk are such high quality people, they got to be something about Christianity. But then I run into Rabbi Abraham Joshua Hesha. Yeah, prophetic Judaic brother. I like to be like him. I do. He, he got that kind of compassion in him. So I begin to see the overlap. Oh, well, I see. It's really the Hesha's to love and kindness. And so. Then I run into Taha, towering Muslim figure. And I want to be like him. So the question becomes, ancestor appreciation is not a basis of religion, but it's an element of one's own religion in light of the context in which you grew up and what shaped you. Then there's an issue of spiritual inspiration and the issue of moral motivation. What is going to sustain you as you deal with the darkness of the world? When your mother dies, when you're dealing with the precious kids in Trenton, when you're dealing with unemployment rates, what's going to sustain you fighting against suffering? What stories? are going to be in place to help you endure. That's where I think religion plays a very, at least for me, religion plays a very important role. But I know we can, we can, we can weave some of our uh, answers in, but I appreciate the honesty of your, and candor of your, your answers. Though, so we have about 20 minutes uh, for questions from the audience. Um, so what we're going to do is uh, there's going to be one student who's going to be standing on this side and one student in the middle you want to be in the middle? You can be in the middle. <laughs> uh, and why don't you stand on this side? We'll have somebody else in the middle. Who, who has the second mic? You have the second mic. All right. Good. So come in the middle. Uh, if you want to ask a question, start lining up behind our students, uh, and, um, and, and then you can ask your question. And as you're doing that, uh, I will start off by asking a question uh, to Dr. Jackson in particular, uh, which is, uh, through the examination of your book, uh, what is the response that you came to with Islamic theology on uh, the issues that Jones raises in his, in his uh, original work? Uh, let me uh, try to uh, preface my uh, response with uh, a few words about the, 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 the overall uh, purpose of, of, of that book. Um, uh, my, my purpose was not so much to arrive at definitive answers to the question of black theodicy uh, as raised by, by Jones. My real intention was to force Muslim theological discourse into an arena of relevance. In other words, 
I was trying to take Muslim theology out of the Middle East and put it in America and then force it to survive on its own, force it to make whatever adjustments need to be made, force it to answer whatever questions need to be asked, because I believe that this is critical to, development, to the development of a truly American Islam. Uh, so that was the real impetus behind the book. Beyond that, it wasn't my attempt to uh, proffer my own personal response to Jones, but rather to let the Muslim schools of theology speak for themselves and to model the fact that, contrary to what many people think, uh, Islam is not a monolith. monolith. When we talk about Muslim theology, we're not talking about one thing. And uh, we're not talking about, you know, um, even cognates. I mean, we got theological schools that are diametrically opposed to each other in, in terms of some of their, <clears throat> their basic presuppositions. <coughs> so part of what I was trying to do was model that. Now, <clears throat> I think, thank you. I mean, as far as an answer goes, <clears throat> I think one of the biggest discoveries to be made in that book has to do with the different ways in which we can understand all powerful and all good uh, when it comes to God. There are different constructions of omnipotence. <clears throat> um, omnipotence does not say, <clears throat> according to the Muslim theologians, um, that, that, that God, if he's, more if, if he's all powerful, that he has to translate everything that he wants into being. Uh, and therefore, there are many things that God could do that God does not do. And for the Muslim theologians, that is not a contradiction of omnipotence. And we could say equal things about omnibenevolence. And it's in those differences that the Muslim theologians come up with different responses to Jones than the ones that we may have thought were the only responses that were possible, assuming that God was all powerful and all good. So, so that was what I was trying to do in that, in that work. And I should say he's highly successful in doing that in that text. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me, Dr. Jackson. Um, sort of a student of history and. Uh, I think one of the uh, uh, crowning uh, achievements of Islam is the uh, Moorish Caliphate in Spain. That lasted hundreds of years. Impressive. In, in supporting the um, monks of Europe, you know, in terms of maintaining uh, 
intellectual uh, sort of treasure of Europe? Or the so uh, what is it that we've lost in that conversation between hundreds of years, hours? Balance between Judaism. Bush. Well, uh, I, I I think that I I, I think that. Uh, uh, oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> what was uh, what was you had a a, a Muslim caliphate in in Spain. Moorish caliph uh, that was pluralistic uh, and tolerant and even supportive of various and sundry other religious communities. Uh, what was lost uh, in that to the point that that no longer seems to be typical of what we tend to think when we think of Muslims coming into political power? Is that a fair? Uh, I think, first of all, the first thing I, I want to say is that, uh, 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 again, um, you know, we have to be careful about the amount of uh, uh, credence uh, that, that, that we give to histories that are, that are not only written by people who are not uh, uh, the history makers themselves, uh, but uh, written in a context where there is civilizational competition going on. And what I'm referring to is the fact that you mentioned a Moorish uh, caliphate. Well, um, the term Moor actually comes from Moriscos, which was uh, sort of a, a term that the Spanish Reconquistas uh, imposed on the Muslims once the Muslims were forced to convert to Christianity. Uh, so what you have in Spain is an Umayyad caliph uh, and, and not, not, not a Moorish caliph. But that aside, I think that uh, it's, it's really important to, to do a couple of things. First of all, we cannot assume that Everything that Muslims do, they do for religious reasons. They're good Muslims, they're middle Muslims, and they're, 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 they're bad Muslims. Uh, sometimes Muslims act out of religious motivations, sometimes they act out of purely political motivations, and there are all kinds of other motivations. So when we, when we, we ask what happened, well, we might be able to explain that, but that might tell us very little about Islam, all right, depending on the basis of the reasons themselves. Uh, the, the, the other thing is that I do think that it was quite typical of the Muslim religious establishment uh, to be very tolerant of other communities. And one of the reasons for that was that, contrary to what many people think, and Professor West talks about the distinction between prophetic and Constantinian Christianity, well, the Muslim religious establishment actually emerged in conscious opposition to the Muslim state. It refused to hand religion over to the state as a tool to be used to do the state's bidding. And I'm reminded, and you have to keep this in context, it's a thousand years ago. There's a debate by a Spanish Muslim by the name of Ibn Hazm and a Jew by the name of Ibn al-Nagrila, who was a very a prominent Jew from a very prominent Jewish family in, in Spain. And Ibn al-Nagrila, had written a refutation of the Qur'an. This is a Muslim Spain. A Jew writes a refutation of the Qur'an. And Ibn Hazm 
writes a refutation of Ibn Naglila's refutation. <laughs> and in the introduction to his refutation, he says the following. You have denigrated the book of Islam. And it is nothing other than Islam that stands between your neck and my sword. In other words, this is a thousand years ago. Let us not get too tempo-centric. <laughs> that's, that's what they have in their business back then. <laughs> a thousand years ago. But in other words, what he was saying that even if I wanted to, if I'm to be true to my religion, I cannot harm you. All I can do is refute you. Uh, and so there is an extent to which Islam has traditionally struggled with what is the, the, the right relationship between the religious establishment and the state. And for most of its history, the religious establishment eschewed the state and did not become a part of it, certainly not in order to do its bidding. So when we talk about what has happened, I think that that's part of what's happened because the whole modern experience in Islam is one whereby the nation-state structure uh, is one where religion simply becomes an automatic part of the state, and the state is able then to preside over religion and use it for its own, for its own purposes. All right? And then today in the Muslim world, you have a, it's a very difficult uh, formula uh, to get the, the religious establishment declare, to declare its independence uh, from the state in such a way that it can do its business in the way that it sees fit. So there are a lot of explanations for that, and I think that I would, I would shy away from overly simplistic ones, but these are just some indications that might put you on the way to intelligently thinking about these kinds of issues. All right, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for a very meaningful conversation, and thank you for being so thought-provoking. Uh, my name is Adnan, and uh, it's good to see you, Dr. Jackson, again. And Dr. West, I got to hear you in Rutgers, so thank you again. Um, I'm going to read a couple of comments. Given your assumed decline, Dr. West, of American hegemony and American empire, um, you know, you call for uh, the restoration of the deep democratic ethos and fundamental philosophy, and I understand that. I agree with you with that. And you also both, I think, call for um, a need for the rena a renaissance and the prophetic tradition, you know, going back towards compassion and justice. Now, I'm an optimistic person, but at the same time, I guess I watch too much CNN, MSNBC, and Fox more than I should, but um, perhaps. But at the same time, an op I'm an optimist. And now, after seeing everything we've been through since the election of Barack Obama, it's taken a woman in a historically man's house, Nancy Pelosi, and a black man in a White House, Barack Obama, to move the country towards more compassionate health care and start with uh, a step towards affordability in college education, which I think is moving towards that compassionate arc that you're talking about. But as a result of what we've seen, the response is the Tea Party movement, um, people spitting on Congress, members like John Lewis, Andre Carson, uh, death threats to Congress, and suspicions continue that you know Barack Obama is a closet Muslim, things like that. 
So my question is, is the arc of justice bro uh, broken? And do we live in a regime of false ideals like you were saying, uh, Dr. Jackson earlier mentioned that phrase? And is this a country of a survivor of the fittest and will it always be that way? Quick, uh, quick, 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 two, two, two comments. Uh, I, 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 I think that, again, uh, 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 part of what it means for me to be a Muslim is, on the one hand, uh, not to be either uh, overly, overly naive or quixotic in my expectations of society, but I think that at the same time, uh, I feel duty-bound not to lose my sense of belief in the miraculous. And I think that uh, it is only belief in the miraculous that will empower us to confront eyes that seem insurmountable, to, to, to confront circumstances that seem unwinnable, uh, but always have the hope uh, and even the guarded expectation that powers outside ourselves uh, can intervene and, and, and carry us uh, the rest of the way when we fall down. Um, so I, I think it's real important for us not to lose, not to lose hope and not to lose our belief in, in, the, power of, in the power of the miraculous. Uh, so I, I, would not be, uh, I would not be pessimistic. Uh, I think that there's a lot of struggle, and I think that that's par for the course. Uh, but I, I don't think that we should be. I don't think that we should be pessimistic. The second thing that I would say is, um, you know, don't. Uh, you know, enemies aren't all bad. Enemies keep you sharp. Enemies keep you aware of what it is that you really stand for. Enemies force you uh, to confront your own convictions uh, and to confront what you're willing to put on the on the ground uh, in the name of your convictions. So. We have there's people out there, but but I don't think that should be enough to disabuse us uh, of our, our of our belief in our own in our own beliefs. No, I mean I would I would echo that. As a Christian blues man, I don't believe in optimism or pessimism. I'm a prisoner of hope, which means as long as there's one baby that needs to be touched and one student that needs to be taught, I got something to do. It could be so much worse, you know. Palin and McCain could have won. <laughs> it's true. I mean, the Patriotic Act could have been thoroughly enforced to such a degree we couldn't have had this conversation. Mm. Authoritarian America. America can go authoritarian and fascist like any other society, you see. And what stands in the way? Courageous citizens who push back. So we brought the age of Reagan to a close. Obama comes in. He leans toward the strong with Wall Street and his economic team. He leads toward the recycled Clintonites and his neo-imperial foreign policy team. But that was still better than McCain and Palin. Now, those are two options that are not worth getting excited about. But one is better than the other. You see what I mean? They pushed through a health care bill that they made dirty deals with the greedy drug companies, the greedy pharmaceutical companies. They're making their big money. They got a bonanza. People are going to choose from them for the most part, you see. So that the oligarchs are still ruling. Like Wall Street banks are bigger than ever, and they were too big to fail before. Right? The children are still suffering. They're too little to rescue. So we still know what the priorities are, but it could be so much worse. So hope is just a matter of keeping in motion to do the bearing witness, as it were. And here I think we do have a, 
a similarity between prophetic Islam, prophetic Christianity, prophetic Judaism. By the way, it's not just hope, it's duty as well. Go ahead and the struggle, duty and hope. Yes. Oh, my name is Martin Wynn, and uh, first I'd just like to kind of reiterate the point that people have been mentioning that uh, I'm very grateful and uh, the conversation that we've had here today. Uh, my question is actually directed to you, Dr. Jackson, uh, because after hearing this discussion and actually having the pleasure of going through your book, uh, my question in short is what next, right, in terms of your theological project, but kind of to enrich that, right, to show you where I'm coming from and where my question is, how it's rooted, is that when I was reading the book, you're... you're Speaking of four theological traditions, long-enduring, that have transformed over time, that have been in conversation with one another, and then they respond to Jones, right, and to the interlocutors of Jones, what prompts Jones, right, in the American context. And so in, in that sense, I think it's an important step in opening up a conversation of the, the Muslim tradition with the American horizon. But my question then is, well, how do you plan to address then kind of the internal dialogue? Because the four theological traditions you mentioned while they seem to converse historically, you never mention well, how, are they, how would they deal with things today? How would they react to one another given the question of theodicy? Right? Because in the past you have the creativeness of the Quran, the issues of free will, but now we have the issue of black theodicy given everything that's happened. Well, do you hope to address this or do you have another idea of how your kind of theological investments will take shape in future works? Well, I think that, I mean, in, in a real sense for me, uh, uh, if I'm the only one who's addressing these issues, then my whole project has been a failure. Uh, part of the whole point of what I'm trying to do is to uh, urge, nudge, uh, 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 coax, cajole, uh, force uh, other Muslims uh, to get involved uh, in a conversation that can produce a critical mass that might, able, that might enable us you know, to establish the foundations of a true Muslim engagement in America, the good and the bad. Uh, I'm not interested in, 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 a, in a soliloquy uh, in that regard. Uh, I, I want to, uh, you know, agitate uh, of the Muslim community. Uh, you mentioned the fact that, you know, these theological traditions have never been in conversation with the whole issue of, you know, black theodicy in America. Well, that's because it's never been presented. Uh, so, you know, it's only been out less than a year. We'll see what the response of the Muslim community is, and if they don't respond well enough, maybe I'll have to... <laughs> but please, I mean, by all means, chime in. I mean, for me, you know, if someone writes a stinging refutation of that book, that's a victory. Uh, I'm interested in establishing the conversation. Uh, again, uh, 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 forcing Islam and Muslims to get serious about the most burning, relevant, formative, seminal issues in the society in which we live. That's not just for individuals. That's for communities as a whole. So I'm looking for anybody who has something to say, say it, please. 
Hi, my name is Afshin Shamsi, and I'd like to thank both of you for being here today and for the stimulating conversation. Um, I'm, I'm actually here seeking advice um, because um, I work for a Muslim civil rights organization in the post-9-11 era, and we are the targets of a lot of hatred uh, from people who don't like the fact that we are Muslims defending the rights of Muslims. And I'm reminded on a daily basis that we would not have these rights today if it were not for the struggle of the African-American community. Um, so I'm thankful for those rights and of the greatness of America to afford us those rights. Um, but recently, um, I was approached by a few members of the Princeton Board of Education who asked me to run for the Board of Ed. And um, I, was, um, I, I was honored to be asked, but I had reservations because um, I'm used to getting a lot of hate mail, but I did not want to expose my family to that. Um, I've kept my professional and my personal life very separate. And um, I did, in the end, decide to run because my desire to serve was greater than my fears. Um, so I did decide to run, and I am running for school board. Um, the election is on April 20th. <laughs> so um, so my, my, um, my, my question to you is, what advice do you have for Muslims who would like to be a part of the fabric of American society and who would consider running for office and who are running for office in America in the post-9-11 era? Both of you. Well, I mean, I, I, I commend you for uh, 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 placing the, uh, the interest of serving over the comfort of indulging your fears. I think that, quite frankly, um, if there's anything that we draw from the lessons of, of the black experience in America, as well as experience of the early Muslims, is that societies are remade by the people who are willing to put it on the line. And make no mistake about it, there will be prices to be paid and I personally hope that I'm not the one to pay the big price, but I also hope that if I'm called upon to do it, that God will give me the strength to stand there and do it because it needs to be done. There will be a price to be paid. And part of the, the fear about paying that price is precisely the normalized domination that I've been talking about. Now we can stay safe, we can stay liked, we can stay popular, and we can stay slaves. And so for me, the real issue is always trying to train myself not to be so comfortable that I'm not willing to pay the price when it's time to pay the price. And that's not just rhetoric, but that's the stuff out of which societies, good or bad, are made. Because the people, many of the people on the other side are willing to pay the price. I mean, I, that's just the reality that we're going to have to confront, uh, especially uh, as, Muslims, uh, as Muslims in America. I think there's another side of this, but we can maybe keep that for another conversation. But you know, Muslims are going to have to come to terms with the whole phenomenon of the racialization of Islam in America. And I don't think we're going to be able to continue as sort of racial agnostics, as it were. Uh, Muslims are going to have to take a stand. I salute your courage. So. It might help even make contact with Brother Keith in the uh, in Congress. What's his name? Keith Ellis. Ellis. Mm -hmm. 
My dear brother, just, just through email, just communication, how he negotiated, navigated through that terrain. Because it's the Jackie Robinson phenomenon, you see. The path blazer is the pioneer, as it were. He do, in fact, deal with assault. That regard, but I think what uh, Professor Unfortunately, we're uh, running out of time, and so uh, in the interest of uh, fairness and the folks who are standing, I just want uh, what we're going to do is that everybody who's standing, ask your question really quickly and very succinctly uh, so we know what your question is. And that will give Dr. Jackson and Dr. West an opportunity to offer a very brief concluding remarks, uh, and we also have a gift uh, to share for both our speakers, so please stay for that as well. A quick Quick questions. Hi, thank you again for having this conversation in public. Um, I'm that student that you mentioned that still needs to be taught, so stick around, Professor West. Um, you asked um, Professor Jackson about prophetic Islam, and I was one. And to give you an example, um, I was wondering if you could give us a, an example of exemplary prophetic Christianity in the United States, and if you can both discuss or kind of. Um, conceive of an idea of having prophetic, of prophetic fill in the blank in sometime in the future, where it isn't just prophetic Islam, prophetic is Hinduism, prophetic Christianity working alongside each other, but perhaps enmeshing in a, in a unique, uniquely American way, but um, and then moving um, to the global sphere. Uh, doctors, um, to my mind, one of the most disingenuous elements about modern conservatism is the way that the political and the economic right seems to have taken control of much of the religious discourse in this country. So what I would like to ask is, what can be done to make liberalism and progressivism, uh, certainly, a righteous cause again in the eyes of the American public? Hi, I'm Cynthia Beasley. My daughter's a junior here, and her father graduated in 1980, so we love Princeton. But my question is, um, I think that there was a gentleman on this side that asked a question about why um, uh, President Obama and um, Mrs. Pelosi were successful uh, in getting the health care bill passed. Can you discuss that in terms of suffering and why they were able to get it passed? They weren't going to give up. I have a theory, but I want to hear what you, what you have to say about that. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name is Muhammad Akbar Mohammed, and I've been, really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, I want to address the aspect of Islamic prophetic, pro prophetic Islam, um, and address some of the topics that were mentioning: suffering, false ideas, images, etc different sense as it relates to the divine, because I think we're dealing with a lot of the symptoms of suffering as it relates to black, white, et cetera, and what's going on in this country. But then there's something that's completely at the root. Almost 1,400 years ago, Muhammad the prophet uh, said in his last address, he said that there is no superiority of the white over the black or the black over the white or the Arab over the non-Arab, or the Arab over the, the non-Arab over the Arab. And this was said 1,400 years ago. So obviously that state of condition had to exist within those times. Uh, another point uh, uh, he said, uh, rel relevant to a term that he used, and I think this goes at the root of faith as a universal picture. He said, used the word kair, and that kair is a term that means good, 
that has universal value for all human beings. Another thing he stated, and just let me get to the question right quick. Another thing he stated, he said that in this end, in this end, that he and Christ Jesus would be together. So here we see the blending of the two prophets in Christianity and Islam coming together and creating a picture that is good for both Christians and Muslims. So my point here is this here. And as it relates to the, the wars that went on between the Dravidians and the Aryans, and the Dravidians introduced a concept that became the prevailing factor in them winning this war with the Aryans. And they introduced an image into religion. And this image that we have is prevailing today. As a matter of fact, Imam Muhammad, he discussed this, and it appears in the Muslim Journal every week, relative to the image and divine. And this is at the pit of racism. So not only did this make victims out of those who are not of that persuasion, but it also makes victims out of those that are of that persuasion. So I see really what's happening. We have victims on both sides. The people, they respond out of a concept that's false. They spawned out of false ideas. And at the same time, we reacted to those false ideas and we reacted to those images. So I would like to have both of you gentlemen like to speak to that. All right, Thank fin you. final question. Thank you. Uh, my name is Kareem Bashir. Uh, I am the imam of the Islamic Center of Ewing, which is about 20 minutes from here. So if any of you would like to visit, you're welcome. Uh, I'm also the president of the uh, Islamic Council of Mercer County. And I'll just like to say this is the, this is the best two-for-one deal in town, I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I respect both of you. I, I've sat... sat with uh, Dr. Jackson on many occasions. I've been in some of his classes. I've heard uh, Dr. West uh, a couple occasions. But to be real br brief, Brother Muhammad stole some of my thunder. What I, what I wanted, to, wanted to, to hear you speak on was relative to suffering. Um, suffering can come in, in many forms, physical, mental, and spiritual. Even though they're independent, they're also connected. So I wanted to hear your opinion on what he had expressed of the concept of, and not to be offensive to anyone, please, the concept of the white God, white angels, white disciples, white Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, and what type of effect relative to suffering, be it physical, mental, or spiritual, has that had on the population of people. And my other point was, um, it was some discussion about uh, Muslims uh, not just looking to Palestine or Iraq or whoever, but to, to, but to establish an agenda here in America. Uh, to, and, and one of the things that, that I didn't hear, and I was just wondering if you can give me some comment on it, is that um, Imam Warfdi Muhammad, who is not a very charismatic type, was not, because he has passed away, may Allah forgive him his sins and give him, grant him paradise, he, he was really one who promoted the development of interfaith, having uh, uh, respect and love for the country that we live in, uh, promoting educational goals, political goals. Many Muslims became involved in politics because of his uh, promotion of such. Uh, but yet, um, when we hear these type of discussions, oftentimes he's kind of left out of the arena in terms of, of, of that type of development. So just wanted to get some comment on so these that. Are, again, uh, thank you. Six thought-provoking questions uh, and uh, very short time for a brief conclusion based on, based on some of these thoughts. Well, uh, well, we'll save the best for last, uh, and so uh, I'll let uh, Professor West go first. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what I have to say is... <laughs> Uh, uh, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me, 
Uh, let me let me start up by, uh, by I, I think there are two of those questions that in the brief time we have I can say a little something to. Uh, the first question has to do with the whole the role of uh, Imam Wadi Muhammad rahimahullah, uh, in uh, the attempt to establish a truly American agenda for Islam in America. Um, I uh, wholeheartedly uh, support your sentiments in that regard. And I've even written some things publicly uh, about that. Uh, I think that the issue in the Muslim community, and this is still part of uh, the process uh, that the community is going through right now, was that uh, I'm convinced. Uh, and you know, age is a, is a, is a funny thing. Uh, it's both liberating on the one hand, uh, and at the same time, it's very, it's very, it's very humbling uh, because you, you come to understand uh, how, how much you've matured and how much your, your thinking has matured. You know, when I look back on many of the things that Imam uh, Muhammad was saying back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, I almost cringe uh, because uh, his insights and his instincts uh, were, were so, so right on. Uh, and I think that, as you yourself mentioned, uh, he was not the most charismatic figure and he did not always have the ability to authenticate those instincts in terms that would be, rec would be recognized uh, by those who had studied Islamic law, by those who had studied Islamic theology, etc. Uh, and for that reason, they didn't always get the multiplier effect that they deserved. Uh, but in terms of his having the, the instincts and the insights, uh, there's no question that many of his instincts, many of his insights, were right on, and the community would have been much better uh, to have followed those instincts. Uh, I want to say, on the other hand, with regard to uh, 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 Islam in America and the whole question of intra-religious relations, I think that you know we have before us a uh, a uh, uh, an example of the possibilities of inter-religious coexistence uh, that perhaps because it happens to be black, uh, we don't give it the due that it, that it deserves. Uh, black people, whether they are Muslims, Jews, or Christians, they don't have those kinds of problems with each other. Uh, I, I, I come from a, a family. My mother's Christian. My got a brother who's a Christian preacher. Um, we, uh, Thanksgiving, we, we come together and we, we don't have those problems. Uh, my mother is not afraid when I come to her house I'm going to blow it up or something. In all seriousness, we as a community, we relate to each other uh, in ways that are mutually respectful and mutually empathetic. We recognize ourselves as coming out of a single story. Uh, why that does not represent the possibilities of Islam in terms of its ability to get along with, to mutually respect, even have empathy for others, uh, that's a question that maybe we as Americans as a whole uh, should begin to think about uh, and, 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 and answer. Uh, but, it's, but, but, but it's there. Uh, so, 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 so we should take uh, some uh, comfort in, in, in the knowledge that we have not only in theory, but in practice, uh, Muslims, Christians, Jews, people who lost their faith, atheists, etc., uh, who come together and who relate to each other 
as human beings. We have that, uh, and we should not overlook that, and we should not allow ourselves to be disabused of recognizing the value of that. And I'll turn it over to my dear brother West. No, but I just so deeply appreciate you trying to get all of us to engage in this as context, as Muslims, as Christians, Jews, or what have you. Uh, it's so easy to evade it, especially when it comes to legacies of white supremacy. This includes white conceptions of God. It could be white Jesuses who look like Michelangelo's uncle as opposed to the first century Palestinian Jew Jesus of swarthy complexion. And we know something's wrong, something that's deeply wrong in that regard. And what happens to persons who internalize that particular conception of a deity associated with power and beauty and so forth when it when it, 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 it's in, in stark contrast to what you look like, as it were. On the other hand, you, you want to resist all forms of idolatry because we know in the end it's not a question of the skin color of Muhammad or the skin color of Amos or the skin color of Jesus. It was the love. It was the justice. It was the service to others that sits at the center, I think, of what, what, what's the best in our various religious traditions. Uh, uh, I would want to say as well in regard to... Uh, point about charisma, or you think about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad who didn't have personal charisma, he had institutional charisma that could bring in highly charismatic figures on a personal level and then sustain an organization with Malcolm and Minister Louis Farrakhan and others himself. When he gives a speech, you've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad speak. about the same size as Prince, about five, 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 four and a half, you know what I mean? So how do you sustain an organization at the top with that kind of institutionalized charisma and yet still generate this unbelievable talent, especially in our own time where the spectacle is at the center mm -hmm. of it all? Spectacle, 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 those who appear a certain kind of way and so on. In regard to Christianity, though, I think one, in terms of the, uh, the, the Christian right. The Christian right right now is in profound crisis. It's partly because they tied themselves to prosperity gospel and the prosperity is waning in the economic crisis. And so what, 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 what partly what they're doing, they're tilting toward charity, not yet justice. But that's a good tilt. They're talking about water in Africa and Latin America, talking about Darfur and so forth and so on. This is philanthropy, charity. Now, Hebrew scripture and in, Christian New Testament and the Quran talk about justice. Charity and justice, no way identical. But I think actually some positive things are happening in the Christian right in terms of its crisis. It's a good thing they're in very deep crisis because now they're beginning to look around. You see. Uh, I think the best examples for me of, of prophetic Christian faith would be here in Trenton. You all know Toby, Toby Sanders Church, beloved community? Right here in, in Trenton. Right on the ground, you see. IAF nationally, Industrial Areas Foundation, Ernesto Cortez, which is ecumenical but profoundly religious, tied to struggles of poor people, struggles of working people. But they believe in grassroots organizing, not astroturf networking. Qualitative difference. And that means it's democratic time versus market time. It takes a while to organize people. You got to get to know them. You can't just do it with social networking even though social networking has its role, as we know, in the historic, unprecedented Obama campaign, you see. But that would be the answer to the question. But again, I want to salute Professor, my dear Professor Jackson, 
Sherman Jackson. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. Give him a hand. And buy his book. Buy his book. Buy his book for you. Buy my book. Oh, I'm serious. I'm serious. Buy his book for you. Buy my book. Yes. Uh, the success of a uh, great conversation is marked by the fact that uh, at Princeton University, usually you can't keep people beyond an hour and a half. So we're reaching the two-hour mark, and people are still here, and it's a full house. Um, and so what I encourage everyone to do is that Dr. Jackson and Dr. West are in conversation, and we look forward to more of their conversations. Uh, we need for everyone here to be in conversation with one another on all of these uh, issues that have been brought forth today. Uh, to conclude the evening, uh, we want to offer a uh, gift to Dr. Jackson and to Dr. West in appreciation of their conversation here today. Uh, one of the uh, most excellent aspects of this program was that it was put together by the Muslim Students Association and the Black Student Union. It was put together by devout Muslims and devout Christians coming together to think about these deep issues. And so we want to have the president of the Muslim Students Association, Saud Athani, and also the Vice President of the Black Student Union uh, come and offer uh, gifts to our respective uh, scholars. Praise God. Dr. Jackson's uh, calligraphy piece uh, says subhanallah, which means uh, glory be to God. Uh, Professor West, his uh, calligraphy piece says praise be to God. And both of the calligraphy pieces were produced by a local uh, Muslim artist by the name of Faraz Khan. Um, so we appreciate him uh, giving this uh, gift to us and being in this community. So uh, thank you very much. There is a book signing outside. Um, and for Muslims who want to pray, the library is available for prayer. Uh, thank you so much for coming and for your participation. Yes. Healthy integration of Muslims into this national discourse. Yes.